Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Constant listeners. Okay, well, I know that Halloween has passed, but that does not mean that the spooks have left us. The season of darkness is upon us, so I wanted to continue with our spooky themes. Last month we talked about Ghost Watch, and we actually visited a haunted castle. This month, however, we're going to go further afield. We're going to go to America, and this month I'm going to focus on a very specific haunting, the haunting of the 20th century really we're going to talk about the Amityville Horror this episode I joined up with uh, the presenters of another podcast, a fantastic podcast called Knock Wants for Yes to discuss the real events or the alleged real events that took place in that house in the next episode I'll then be looking at the media and entertainment value that the Amityville has provided, the first film, the film series, and how it started to change how haunted house films were created in the 70s, 80s and on. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to me and the presenters of Knock Once for Yes. Please enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. I just moved in my new house today Okay, so uh, I'm joined by the guys from Knock Once for Yes. Um, Hello, I'm Lil. Sorry. No, 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 um, and we're really interested in the subject as a whole and we love hearing other people's experiences so our show is basically us sharing what we've been through listening to other people's stories and uh, yeah basically just you know we'd, we'd love to hear from everybody about their own weird and paranormal stories mm-hmm. yeah there's been some great ones I mean, I've mean, i been a, a, a subscribed listener and uh, it's the, excellent the, the stories that come out are fantastic it's you know um I think I sort of lean towards. I think Fitz, you said you're more of the skeptic. Um, yeah, I basically my view is I believe that people have experienced what they say they've experienced. I'm just not necessarily going to agree with their interpretation of it. Mm. You know, I've I've seen stuff that I just I cannot explain, but I won't jump in and go, oh, you know, that's the disembodied spirit of so and so. It's just like that was weird, and I don't know what it was. I think I come at it from a similar angle in that I will definitely be sceptical and I I don't believe that just because somebody's seen something it's their great aunt Edna. However, I am am (laughs) the one that 
tends to want to believe <laughs> so <Yeah>. much more. <laughs> That's it, but that, that 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 balance of sort of like you know having that that view of not being the blind um, believer, um, it, it allows you to sort of you know to find that nugget of truth in all of these situations that probably is actually stranger than just believing it's a ghost. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's just a ridiculous coincidence or, you know, it's a coat on the back of the chair. But other times there is just no explanation that, well, yeah, that we can think of. Obviously, most of the stuff's either secondhand or you can't necessarily replicate it. But it's just, you think, I, even years later, having pondered over it, you just can't think of any explanation. Yeah, and that's it. So I think it's, it's so you can ponder it and go round it and round. But... Do we ever will we we ever find the truth? I've been, one of the things I've been do, doing to sort of prepare myself for this a little bit is, is watching a lot of the uh, the ghost hunting shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and, and they vary from um, the sceptical, you know, or they say they're sceptical, but within five minutes they're all <laughs> jumping around and you know, oh Screaming. my god, I've heard, yeah, I've heard this, I saw this. <laughs> yeah. and sort of, I, I don't think I've made it through. I think I get like two or three episodes into each one and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> cringeworthy. Yeah. Some some of them are very to much cringeworthy. To be fair, I, I went out with UK Haunted a few weeks ago um, on an investigation and you know, even being pretty sceptical, it is fairly easy to get caught up in the moment. Mm. You know, we were listening to, uh, you know, the ghost box. I'm not really a big sort of believer in it, but, you know, you'll sit there for half an hour 45 minutes and you'll get two or three things that seem to follow on what you're answering and there's a little part of your brain that's going oh that makes sense you know talk back to it talk back to it it's talking to you yes and you sort of look back on it later and you go well i was there for 45 minutes and most of it was either nothing or or didn't really make sense but it's just you you take the hits don't you that's it yeah you've got to sort of take the yeah the good with the bad or the the strange with the normal, I suppose. That's the... And it's much easier to be sceptical in your armchair at home with lights on. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I totally agree. I can sit here and the, you know, in the light of day and say that I don't believe. But then, even at home, you know, with the lights off or sitting somewhere quiet, if you hear something, there's always going to be that second guess in your head that goes, um... Oh, yes. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. So, can you just wait one second? Yeah. Yep. Sorry about that. My four-year-old just came downstairs to check. <laughs> she says she, she she's come down to check on me. That was very nice. Oh, bless. <laughs> um, I just had an image in my head of that TV, uh, the reporter that was on a couple of months ago who was doing some, was it North Korea or something, oh, and yeah. his kids ran into the room and then the wife ran in and <laughs> yeah. pulled the kids out. <laughs> it's, it, I tell you what, it's, it happens. I said, I get the chance to work from home um, at least once or twice a week. We have like you know Skype meetings there. 
the amount of times yeah. she walks in and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and you're just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Making uh, money to feed you. <laughs> <laughs> trying. Okay. So, yeah, so what we're going to talk about today then um, is we are going to jump into what I would say is possibly one of the most well-known supernatural paranormal events ever. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, it's certainly the the thing, the event that brought the haunted house to the big cinema screen, I think. Mm. Yes, it's a, yeah, it's a thing in pop culture that the word Amityville is sort of synonymous with haunted houses now, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So let's start with, uh, we'll run through the events and then we'll sort of we'll chime in about how, what we think of those and uh, and then we'll talk about the haunting if that's okay okay yeah. cool so the one thing we do know is on november 13th 1974 23 year old ronald butch defeo uh took a 35 caliber rifle and killed both his parents and his siblings in their beds i think that's sort of alleged but he then went to work the next day, carried on as normal, uh, and then later that day ran into the local bar, got a group of his friends whilst he was to go back to the house whilst he was stating that somebody else had killed his family. Mm-hmm. He was later arrested for this after the police had done a whole host of investigation. They linked it to the mob, they linked it to contract killing, they linked it to home invasions, they're, they're all kinds of things. The crux of it is, though, that on the 21st of November, 1975, Butch DeFeo was convicted for the killings. Now, this in itself is where the paranormal stuff starts to allegedly be linked with the house. Before we get to the Lutzism, what do you guys think of the killings? There are some very odd things that I wouldn't necessarily pin down immediately to be paranormal, but... um... (laughs) To start with, uh, Ronald DeFeo did actually come out and say at one point that he was possessed by demons to do it. His story has changed wildly over the years since he's been incarcerated. He came out and said he was possessed by demons and he was under this demonic influence. And then later he retracted it and said, no, that was rubbish. He wasn't at all. It was just down to him. Um, There was also some query over whether his sister was involved Mm. in the killings. Um, which is very interesting. He was on drugs when he committed them or supposedly committed the murders. Um, And he, in a statement, one statement, he says that he saw this hooded figure with black gloved hands give him a gun through this sort of drug-induced haze. Um, And a neighbour later said that they saw his sister leaving the house, presumably to possibly ditch a murder weapon, in a hooded coat wearing black gloves, so there is a theory going on there that actually they were both in it together and then later he killed his sister. Yeah, because apparently they were very close. As, a bit too close. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, yes. <laughs> the suggestions do, yeah. They, yeah. Some of the innuendos in the documentaries weren't so subtle, I think. No. Um, yeah, this, this, these are claims of demonic um, possession and stuff seem to have come out of nowhere, but... It's the thing of um, these these claims were then supported by the fact he used the thirty five caliber rifle, which is notoriously loud. But there were no reports of gunshots from neighbours or anybody in the vicinity. 
No, but the odd thing is that the neighbours reported that they heard the dog barking yes. that night. Now, how on earth would the sound of a dog barking wake you up? But the shoot six rifle shots, was it six, I think? Well, six six rifle so... shots would not. Yeah. No, there was because he'd shot his parents twice and oh, everyone else once, didn't so he? So more than six shots. So yeah. And that didn't wake them up, but the dog did. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, well, that's the one thing, the, the fact that there was no noise. And the other thing was that none of the rest of them woke, got up, you know, went, what on earth is that going on in the house? Not just the neighbours, but yeah, the, yeah, they were all shot no in their beds. Wounds. And, you know, You'd have thought if you heard gunshots in another room that you'd be jumping out of bed going, what on earth's going on? Mm. Yeah, because they're all found in a similar position as well, face down on their stomachs. To the back or the back of the head. So it's, like you say, no... And the toxicologist no said there was no drugs or anything either because that was the only other thing that yeah. immediately springs to mind is that they were drugged, which mm. is why they didn't hear it and didn't move. But apparently that wasn't the case. No. I mean, the only thing I saw that sort of was a possibility that was that his two youngest... Uh, two younger daughters, two younger sisters, had been killed elsewhere, uh, and then moved and placed in the bed. Um, yeah. However, when I sort of like tried to research that a bit more, it was more. It, it was just a claim. There was nothing to suggest. Right. So there was nothing to back that up, really. No, there was no blood, blood splatter or gunshot in the, the, the rest of the house, just in the bedrooms. So. It and also, there was no silencer used, was no. there? Because they did find the murder weapon, and it. it it didn't have a silencer on it. No, it, yeah, it was just found down the street in a storm drain. Um, mm. And yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, it, this is where I sort of, as I said before, like I, I, I flip flop on this. You know, when I researched it, so whether it's there's any supernatural events. Uh, or anything no, I know it's not because it's nothing to make you immediately think supernatural, despite um, DeFeo's claim to the sort of demonic influence. Mm. But then, yeah, when you get down to it, how on earth did a whole street not hear those shots? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we live in this country in relatively close proximity, and if someone bangs a door in the house next door, I'm pretty much going to hear it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so. I mean, admittedly, it was a detached house, so you're not going to get the sort of common noises you'd get in sort of a terrace here. But mm. a, a gunshot travels. Oh yes, yes. Um, the, the, I mean, the, you know, when the police did the forensics in the house, um, I looked at. So you can't obviously. I don't think you can see the actual reports and stuff. But there were all these claims, and so I saw notes in in different websites that were saying that. When they did the forensics, like they only looked at the bedrooms because there was no evidence of anything being disturbed in the rest of the house. So there was no like broken furniture. There was no sign of struggle. There was no. There was nothing. The house just looked normal, untouched. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't. I don't understand. Um, it's it's hard to sort of nail it down as a truly normal event. Definitely. No, and I find that actually the most interesting part of this story. Really? Yeah, I you know the, obviously you've got the Lutzes and their experiences, but I actually find that you know the fact that they all stayed in their beds, you know that nobody heard the gunshots. That is the most intriguing part of the story for me. I agree. I, I do. It's one of the things I keep coming back to because I mean the other thing is it was the sort of like well why did he do it? You know whether it be the demon possession or whatever. Well, you... I think there's a lot of evidence that that was a very unhappy family. Yes, and that's what I was going to say. It's it's when you dig into the family, um, the his dad, well, it was also Ronald DeFeo, was a very violent, aggressive drunk. Yeah. Who beat pretty much everyone in the family. 
in, in front of the children's friends as well, according mm. to some reports. So, you know, um, I also I saw, uh, I watched the documentary, it was just focusing on the, the, the DeFeo shootings. And apparently he, they had taken Ronald DeFeo to a psychotherapist around a year to 18 months before the shooting. And they, they oh, had, had they? And he had received treatment and was actually in therapy but they had been warned that if they didn't do something to help him, he was going to snap. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it wouldn't have helped with all the drugs either as well. No. God, uh, yeah, so... Mixed mel- me- mental illness and heroin and all sorts, and mm. that's just a recipe for disaster. Mm. The thing that I find most interesting about um, the, the family situation with the DeFeos is just to jump slightly ahead very briefly, you can see quite clear parallels between the DeFeo family dynamic and then the Lutzes, I think, mm. later. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a question I sort of have, actually, because there is that thing. And the, the part of the world that this takes place in, um, the families, both families come from sort of like, they came from rougher neighbourhoods and moved into the Amityville area. Mm. Uh, the DeFeos came from Brooklyn and... Um, the Lutzes came from another part of Long Island. I can't remember what it's called now, but the the, the, the a rougher area of this the, the the of Long Island. But they both come from a slightly, you know, say, a, a a working man type of background where that was probably accepted. You know, strong man at yeah. the head of the house and stuff. Um. So it is yeah, interesting dynamic. But did, did did that play in then? Did that play? Was something left in the house that affected the Lutzes? Well, it just, it strikes such a, a a parallel to my mind that um, you'd have this family with this abusive dynamic and then just to follow it straight up after this horrific murder with another family with this similar dysfunction and abusive dynamic. Well, let's, let's, let's get to that then, really. So, as we said, the killings happened on November 13th, 1974. Uh, Ronnie DeFeo was, was convicted... Uh, on November the 21st, 1975. And like literally weeks later, on December 18th, 1975, the Lutz family move into the Amityville house. Um, it's George Lutz, uh, his wife Kathy Lutz, and they have three children, Danny, Chris and Melissa, who is referred to as Missy. And George is the stepfather to all three children. Um, he's a surveyor. Uh, work as a contractor and they got this house for £80,000 which to me still sounds quite expensive but yeah it does to me actually for the the size of it yeah Yeah. Uh, but apparently it was a steal Um, and so yeah they moved in very very quickly Uh, they bought the house and moved in within um, literally in a matter of weeks they bought all the furniture as well didn't they that was left behind yeah literally pretty much everything um, it's bizarre. Which just it sounds that that is incredibly creepy to me. <laughs> just to take to to move into this house that's still fully furnished with the dead family's furniture. Yeah, I mean, even from a pragmatic approach, if you're a bit like, yeah, I'm not too bothered. It was former crime scene. I'm not superstitious or anything. Even from a pragmatic no, but I think they I think they kept the beds that they were uh, murdered in. You did. That's the bit that freaks me out. Oh. I mean, why? <laughs> Why would you do that? I can understand everything else. I mean, yeah, I guess the kitchen sideboard's probably not, you know, been involved much in the murder, but the beds that they were shot in, why? Yeah. 
So they move in on the 18th of December and they flee, they flee 28 days later. So let's, so what, what's your thoughts on those, tw- those 28 days that the Lutz is spending the house? Oh, goodness, where to begin? <laughs> it's very difficult to actually manage to pin down a first-hand account from the time of what happened in that house, according mm. to the family. Um, and part of the problem, and, and really why such um, convoluted stories have blown up around this event, is because I don't think they ever really got the chance to tell their story first-hand before the media got hold of it. Um because they talked to uh, William Webber, who was wanting to enter into this book deal with him, but he basically leaked their story mm. without the family's permission and without any consultation to an associate of his, who then had it published in Good Housekeeping. So that's the first account there is. But the family didn't know it was happening. So there really is no initial first-hand original account of what happened. Which bothers me. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I mean, the other thing is that it's that thing of like saying, not only is there like an, a, not an, uh, an initial draft or an account, there's never been like a proper like analytical first-hand account. It goes, no. It goes, like you say, it goes from it happening to becoming entertainment. Exactly. With, with nothing in between from the family. Um, and... <sighs> Well, I think the reason that they um, asked Jay Anson to do the book um, was to try and set the record straight. According to them, they wanted their opportunity to actually put their story out there and put to rest some of these, you know, wilder claims that were happening. But to do the book, they actually made recordings of their experiences on tape and handed them over to Jay Anson sort of put their entire trust in him mm. to tell their story. Um, and by all accounts, he didn't do that. They no. didn't then consult with him, though, over the book, which I find really strange. Well, this is it. I think I mean, I've now read the book, um, which was sort of one of the reasons I wanted to do all this. And when I, like I, said, when I researched the book, I was a bit like, well, it feels like a novel. It reads like a novel. It does. I did it backwards. I read the book before I saw any of the films. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd, either way, it's 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 entertainment, like I say, because when you read the novel, yeah. and I'm going to call it a novel, uh-huh. um, he accounts, he recounts things that they clearly would not have known about. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's whole conversations between the priest and his bishops. Uh, there's whole conversations between other people. And it's like, well... He clearly took what they said and thought, mm, I need to beef this up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the sons, Chris, has um, has come out and said later, you know, he didn't, he wasn't allowed to read the book, obviously, at the time. He was only a child. He, he didn't read it until he was an adult. And he practically threw the book across the room when he did get around to reading it because, to his mind, that was supposed to be their story. And when he actually read it, he was horrified. Yeah. Um, and he took it to his mother and showed it to his mother and said, you know, why did you let them do this? This is this is horrendous. This didn't happen. This isn't a true representation of our story. Yeah, I think, like, um, in almost every interview I've seen with any of them, they've all said that everything that was ever publicised was exaggerated. Mm. 
And when you actually listen to what they're saying, it's certainly a lot more toned down than, well, the book and the, the films. And because it's all, like you say, it's entertainment. It's got to have that shock value. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it would be an interesting story down the pub, but it wouldn't sell multinationally. I do agree. I think that's, and that's where the sort of, this caught a public imagination. I mean, it really did. I mean, you know, again, you, when you, you see the interviews. They were on chat shows for months, um, and you can, like you say, you can see in these interviews that whenever they're pressed to give an answer, they they're almost be they've almost been given an answer. They have to repeat parrot style in some cases of yes, this is what happened. This is you know yes, we are selling the book. Yes, this this is what happened. It never feels. I don't want to say genuine because it's clearly what. It's clearly something happened, but I still feel like they've been prodded to add and boost because there's more. Well, I someone behind it poking them to say more. Yeah, and I wonder whether uh, there is some pride in that as well. Because, like I said before, they they started off on the back foot. Mm. Um, they thought that William Weber, who was Daniel Defoe's defence attorney, was going to help them with this book deal. And they realised very quickly that he was just out for the dollars. Mm -hmm. And they realised very quickly that he was trying to cut in Ronald Defeo for 5% of the profits of the book, including their story, and decided that there was no way they were going to fund a murderer for killing his family um, and pulled out. But this, of course, put William Weber's back up. And I think him leaking the story to the press was was a retaliation in a way. But by that time, it was too late. The story's out there and it's exaggerated and it's blowing up and the, the public are going crazy over it. And then what do you do as a man, as an ex-Marine, as a proud ex-Marine, when the, um, the media are saying to you, oh, my goodness, all these terrible, terrifying, frightening things happened and they force you to flee your house? Um... And then how do you turn around and say, well, actually, it wasn't that scary, but, yeah, I was. we were scared enough to run away, but it was nowhere near as terrifying as the, the media are painting it. You can't really do that, can you? There's a there's a level of pride in there that would stop you. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that, but it's a really good point. Like, psychologically, it's that thing of sort of, if the bar has been set at a yeah. certain level, yeah. people are like, well, you managed to live with that. That's incredible. And you're like, well, no, not really. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You say it's, it's it dips that interest. I mean, the one thing that has come up a few times, we've obviously already in our conversation, is money. Mm. And one of the go tos for en whenever anything like these, any event, not just Amityville, but whenever any of these events go into the public eye, money comes up. Oh, they've done it just to sell their story and da 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 da. And I've, I'm well, they their claim originally was that the the reason they came out with a story in the first place was because um, DeFeo was saying at the time that he was under demonic influence. And they say that they felt they couldn't not come forwards um, because although what he did was terrible um, and unforgivable, they thought he might genuinely need help because they felt they'd experienced true evil in that house. Mm. And they felt that like it was their responsibility almost to come forward and, and bring their story and say, you know what, he might not be crazy. He may be under some sort of evil influence. And that was their drive to do to to actually come forward, yeah, I think it's it's like you say it's, it's they were doing it they, well if if that's to be believed they were doing it for the right reasons, mm. um, and that's when you start to wonder like how much of what they actually recounted 
happened. And if you do tone the book back a bit, you can. There are certain things that you can feel are, um, are true, that come up again and again. Like the fact that like you know George Lutz could never get warm. He always felt cold in the house, and was obsessed with the fire. Um, you know he he apparently suffered um, dark moods and started to feel really sick and got really ill. I have to say though that um, although that does come up in a lot of haunting stories, um, it could also be signs of PTSD or anxiety disorder. He speaks a lot about how he becomes obsessed with checking the boathouse is locked and spends half the night running backwards and forwards to the house into the boathouse checking things. You know the fact that he could never get warm and the mood swings. Um, it could quite equally, I think, be a mental health problem. I'm really glad you said that because I was, I was that's exactly what I was going to ask. Because it's, and it's, I'm not, I'm not making a sweeping statement. I no, 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 actually no. have anxiety myself, so these are things that I have experienced. But but like you said, though, he's a he is a former marine. He's clearly had some experience. Mm. I don't know what his military career was like, but it was also under it was also under a lot of stress from work. You've got to imagine, so yeah, financially. So could it? Could it be that? Could it be that like these things all you know built up to actually form a, a, uh, a like I say, a form of mental illness that for that period actually not only just affected him but started to affect the entire family. Definitely, but having said that, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the things that they have the all of the family have consistently brought up um, as first-hand accounts are things like being woken up in the middle of the night by these tremendous noises, mm. door slamming, hearing footsteps, um, Kathy being touched on the hand, and think of what some of the other ones are. That, that thing, that's, that, that's something I need to focus in on, actually, because the thing is that, say, there's all the noises, and the things that I could easily discount, and I, threw, I almost threw away, was um, the flies seemed to be something that was very entertainment, very, you know, you could forget all that. Yeah. But the thing of Kathy, uh, the presence that she felt in the um, the kitchen area, she said she felt she, you know, someone touched her on her arm. She felt uh, she could smell uh, perfume, um, and she felt like almost like it, it's in the book and in the film. It's described as almost like a supportive presence. It never that felt doesn't feel so aggressive. No, she seemed to experience the whole thing in a very different way because she said later that. She felt more at peace in the house. She was aware that these things were going on and they were disturbing, but she actually didn't want to leave. And that was the main way it affected her for the majority of the time was that she she stopped wanting to go out. She stopped being able to find reasons to go out of the house, almost like she was more at peace there somehow. Yeah. So it's that thing of, like you know, you know we said about the dysfunctional family that the, the Feos were. Um, you know, you have the aggressive... Um, Daddy DeFeo, and then you, yeah. ha- you had the the beaten and I was, assume rather submissive um, mother of the family. Mm. If this is tw- literally, you know, just over thirteen months later, is is this a, a, a you know those spirits or that that echo coming forwards? I tend to draw more parallels with something almost like the Enfield case. Mm. Because I don't know why, but for some reason, Amityville is not generally seen as like a classic poltergeist haunting. When I say poltergeist haunting, that's um, 
quite widely believed to be caused by a person mm. rather than a ghost haunting a house. It tends to, like with the Enfield haunting, it was centred around two young girls. It's sort of understood, well, understood, <laughs> believed to be almost created by a person that um, is experiencing trauma or really high emotions. And they're almost, they're making these this paranormal phenomena happen. And I kind of wonder whether there's a, an element of that to it because you've got a family that's quite dysfunctional, they're not getting on. George perhaps is suffering for some, from some mental trauma as well. And that's a lot of energy to, to be putting out there, especially coming in straight into an environment where there's been that intense energy and this horrible murder and, and psychosis, really, of Ronald DeFeo. Um, and then you've got another family coming in straight on top of that and almost creating a perfect storm. Well, that's it. Uh, you, yeah, and that's, it's that energy, isn't it? So you've had that, or everything's gone before has now been piled on top of. And I'm, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Enfield. Like I say, everyone focused on Enfield as being almost like a, a typical uh, poltergeist haunted, almost like a you know textbook, as it were. Two mm. young girls on the verge of puberty, it's sort of like, then it all starts, it's focused in on a focusing on a spirit that, that lived in the house. This, though, like I say, the reason I think people um, don't associate this with almost poltergeist activity is, is for two reasons, really. Firstly, I would say it's the fact it's built on the entertainment entertainment aspect of people, you know, it's so sensationalised that it's it's more, it's almost more than a poltergeist activity. Yeah. The second one is... I think something that people have become more aware of in recent years is what I've become to know as the Warren effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> the Warren effect. Those Warrens. Yeah. So they get involved after the after the fact. And as with everything, there are no ghosts, there are no spirits. This is plain and simple uh, a a demon from hell. Of course it is. <laughs> um, and I think... Um, uh, Lorraine Warren actually described it as the most evil house she'd ever visited. I think all the houses she visited were the most evil house she visited. It's funny you say that because I then looked into the house she visited <laughs> that was the forming of the basis for the conjuring and she did say exactly the same thing. <laughs> I am not surprised. It's really funny because I was watching two interviews um, back to back. I was watching one with George recounting his... Um, the events on the last night before they fled the house. And then straight after I watched one with Ed Warren mm. recounting his version of events on the last night in the house. And George described um, the levitation of Kathy and he said she raised slightly off the bed about three to four inches. But by the time it got to Ed Warren telling it, George and Kathy were floating two feet from the ceiling. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is. He's, I, I always think of the Warrens as like the typical like, Hollywood producers. Like they've they've got to big up a story, so by the time you tell them, it's ten times bigger, and it's almost like everything's going to. It's the Michael Bay effect, like everything's going to explode. <laughs> so, I I do think they're the reason that this gets less is has given less credence as the years have gone on, is because of the sort of um, the bombastic nature of the claims that they made. Which well, it's almost like everyone involved is trying to one up each other. 
you know, they're trying, each one wants a bit of the limelight. So it's like, no, no, it wasn't three inches. It was four feet. And then, you know, it wasn't four feet. It was 10 feet. And, yeah. you know, each time you, you sort of have a new version of the story. It's, it's well, it's like the, the fishing story down the pub, isn't it? It starts off, you've got a two pound tench. And then all of a sudden, by the time, you know, your other half comes to drag you out of the pub, it was a monster and it nearly swamped the boat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I think they are. I think that they're a real... I did, the, one of the documentaries I watched was um, it was called My Amityville Horror, and it was, yeah. did you watch it? We yeah. did. <laughs> He's Dan- an oddball, isn't he? With Danny DeFeo, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was quite upsetting to watch in a way. I mean, that he's very disturbed by events. Yeah, he's had an interesting life because he, if he's to be believed, he left home when he was like fourteen. He lived in the desert for a while and. There's other bits and pieces that, that were very... Yeah, we found that really odd. There were certain things like that where he'd make a statement, like, I went to live in the desert, and the interviewer was like, you know, okay, well, tell us a bit about how did you... Say, I just lived in the desert. Yeah. There was no... Like, if you said to somebody, you know, okay, so you say you lived in the desert, you know, how did you do that? You know, they might say, well, you know, I backpacked around and I had a tent or I lived in an RV or... You know, stayed with I, some friends. Yeah, stayed with friends, but it was just, no, I lived in the desert. You're not getting any more out of me for that. And that seemed really strange. It was really bizarre. I mean, actually, he does actually say at one point, he say, I stayed with friends. And they say, "What? The, so there's other people in the desert. He's like, oh, yeah. And <laughs> it's just, like, oh, well, I'll, I'll accept your word for it then. That's fine. We'll, we'll move on from that. Yeah. yeah it's very... Very defensive. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable to watch. It um, was... But the but the part that I found the most unusual because he does he makes claims that that he was possessed that he he levitated and that there were things that he saw that happened. You know, he actually states that these things happened on the twenty eight days. But then when he goes to see Lorraine Warren, he he basically treats her like a loony. <laughs> she, I know that was so bizarre. I couldn't work out what was going on. No, it... I, re- I really couldn't understand what was happening, and t- I couldn't tell whether he was aiming that at her or 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 just what. <laughs> it, yeah, he's all over the place, so I couldn't I couldn't take him as a sort of a reliable source. No, th- do you know what the thing that I find really strange is that both sons in in, in all the interviews they've done, they quite obviously really hate or dislike at least their stepfather never got on with him they both left home early because they couldn't get on with him um they've you know pretty much said that they he was violent towards them so you can understand um that loathing but then why it would be so easy for them to refute george's claims it would be the perfect retaliation for them to get back at him for what he put them through in their childhoods to turn around as adults and go no he made it all up None of it happened. And I find that really, really peculiar. It it does lend credence to it. Mm. It, Well, yeah, exactly. You're right. It lends credence to it. And that's the thing that you say. That was almost when I I knew nothing about um, the the, the documentary before I'd watched it. And when I watched it, that was my expectation. Yeah. That he was going to sit there and say, no, it's all rubbish. And... George Lutz, you know, was a horrible man and this happened and that happened and he did it for these reasons and stuff. So when he actually started recounting tales of possession and levitation and ghosts, I was a little bit gobsmacked that I was like, Mm. oh, 
okay, so you... And the thing that adds further credence for me is the fact that, like, they are not in a good position and they're clearly not trying to milk this for money. No. You know, you don't see one of them turn up as executive producer on Amity Asylum or Amity (laughs) Dollhouse. And in fact, um, Chris has sort of um, tried to hijack the latest Amityville movies, mm. in fact. He, he's turned up on the set and caused havoc. And in the way he describes it, you can completely understand why. You know, they've just taken this story that's supposed to represent the poor, you know, his childhood um, and just run away with it. So you can, you know, it makes sense when he's explaining why he's trying to hijack it and he's been approached by people to um, on these films to be a consultant and he's told them where to go. Mm. And you, you can understand that, but it doesn't... <sighs> If he was if he was gaining anything from the Amityville story, surely he wouldn't do that. No, I mean, if anything, it seems to have broken this family. Yeah, I again, every time they've they've spoken about it, they've said you know it's it's nowhere near as exciting as the film makes out. And if you're you know brought in to sort of help produce a film and you say actually you don't need that explosion, that never happened, and mm. you, know, you don't need this, didn't didn't happen. And it's like, well, what actually did happen? Like well, you know, you could tell it in ten minutes, and it's not that scary, really. Yeah. It just if you wanted to make money out of it, you'd be like, yeah, you know. And then this happened, and then it took the roof off and pulled the head <laughs> off my sister, and you know, you you dramatize it for effect, wouldn't you? But to sort of say, no, well, no, the window didn't smash; it just opened and closed, and yeah, you know, you, it doesn't have the feel to me that they're trying to make it interesting for the public. They're just like, this is what I remember. Yeah, and so they're not um, refuting the claims. They're not saying it never happened, but they're not sort of cashing in on it either, which is, you know, really does to me say something happened. Yeah, it wouldn't take much for, you know, Chris DeFeo, uh, um sorry, Chris sorry. Lutz, uh, yeah. this is my story, to release his own book and cash in on that, but they don't appear to have done it. They'll no. do interviews and things, but there's no sort of... They haven't released their own books to say, you know, this is the real story. You watch, they will now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't prove me wrong. Even the books are a like the first one. Jay Anson's first book is a telling of their events that twenty-eight days. But there are seven other books. I know. <laughs> there's, you know, there's literally a, the, the first three are treated like a trilogy, and the, the part two and three are just complete like fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's assuming the first one wasn't complete that's fiction. Good point. Very true. <laughs> it's, but like you say, this whole this whole event is is overtaken by entertainment and a desire to to um, shock. Yeah, but I wonder if that's because of when it happened. Well, there was nothing, and and that's what annoys me sometimes when people say, "Oh, they were just doing it to get a movie deal." How could they have possibly? There was nothing like this out there at that time nothing mm. um and i think the the movie only came about because the book had become such a bestseller but it wasn't you know it wasn't known it's not like today where haunted house movies of you know dime a dozen they didn't exist not no. not in that format no i, I read it because I mean, they didn't make anything from the film they made no very little because as you say the, the film isn't isn't uh, a film of their story the the film is a, an adaptation of the novel the the book so yeah jay anson may have made a bit of cash but they didn't see a penny so no. again that lead, leads credence to the idea of like well what what were they doing this for then um 
And if they were doing it deliberately for money, they went a strange way about it in a very risky way. Yeah. You know, there was by far no guarantees they were going to make anything out of that. You know, it it may have just been sort of like if they were doing it for the money that a magazine would have said, well, we'll print it for 50 quid. Like, you know, the stories you get in the newspapers that are sort of public interest stories. You know, it might go, ooh, Woman's Own will publish it for 50 quid, but that's yeah. all you're going to get. <laughs> You know, it's not like they were guaranteed <laughs> the stardom for that. No, well, I don't think the sensational press really existed at that period. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't like a 24-hour news cycle that had to be filled. So stories like this probably weren't getting the press then. But, I mean, George, um, I think in a later interview, said basically that himself. You know, somebody put the question to him, were you doing it for the money? Um, you know, how, what would you say to somebody that would... Uh, accuse you that you're doing it for the money and he said if we were doing it for the money we would have done a better job of it yeah and yeah. I, I think he's right <laughs> you know the the actual very base claims that they that they all consistently all the family members consistently come out with like hearing the footsteps waking up at 3 a.m in the morning mm. the the doors slamming the um being touched on the hand they're all really really classic things that we have experienced ourselves mm having lived in a haunted house, and we hear them from our listeners in, in their stories all the time. They're really, really common things. And if you were going to sensationalise this story, that's not what you'd come up with. No. <laughs> and that's it. I think that's it. It, 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 it. When you get to the sort of like the nub of, the nub of this and you start scraping away the crap, really, there is clearly something here. That I think so you know that that the, is it unexplainable one thing i will throw in is when the warrens did uh visit the house with their with their team it was sometime after i think it was it was close it was several months after yeah um, when they went back george lutz would not go back into the house no he refused he yeah he took them to the property and then stayed outside yeah they then did their investigation and they did uh several attempts to contact someone but the thing that seems to come out of this investigation and still stands up today, or is, or comes up today, is a photograph. Oh, oh. gives me chills. I literally, str- I, I actually have trouble looking at that photograph. I, it's just, it really makes the hair on my arm stand up. So have you seen the comparison between the, the photograph of the little boy and the photograph of the youngest DeFeo son? DeFeo, yeah. Yeah, we yep. have. What, what do you think? I think... I think it looks like the little boy. It does. It really because one of the debunk theories is actually it's one of the investigators on their knees. But it looks yeah, like but a it small was. Um, I was going to yeah. say. I just I don't buy into that. The only um, like you say, the only person they think it might have been was this young lad who was on the the film crew, the Channel Five film crew. I think that was in there at the time. Um, and he was wear- that he was wearing glasses, and that's why they think that you get this reflective eye mm. that you can see in the picture. This boy's got like these glowing eyes, but it it looks so not <laughs> like a young man on his knee. You know, a tall younger man on his knees wearing glasses to me. It looks like a little kid peering through the banisters. Yeah. Well, the, so clearly, this is it. So they claim, yeah, that the debunkers. Some people have stated it's a guy called Paul Bartz who was a young investigator on the team. But when he's been asked, he has like sworn to high heaven that it's not him and that he was not actually in the house when those photographs really? were taken. Because those photographs were taken on a, st- a camera set on a timer. Mm. So, is it, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, anyone can say that. But it, just looking at that photo, 
There's it's just, just something about it, though, that just raises the hackles. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the other thing that happened on that visit is actually one of the other guys, uh, I think it was uh, the photographer, Gene Campbell, when he was carrying his equipment up the stairs, um, he had palpitations. Um, he had a strong chest mm. pain, he had palpitations, and actually almost fell down the stairs and had to be carried or helped from the building. Um and apparently there was no report of health issues before or after. It was just a single isolated event within that investigation. So, Do you know what? I've heard that quite a lot, actually, from um, people that have gone into places with a, you know, to investigate. Mm. And they've had a really, really strong fit. And sometimes it's nausea and, and dizziness and, and palpitations. It seems to be quite common. And that's my point. It's, again, it's not like a fantastical... No. Uh, no, he didn't turn purple. He didn't levitate. <laughs> it, it's just something that actually gets reported again and again and again. It's a physical reaction to a to a location or to a, you know, a presence. Yeah. So again, I think it starts to lend further credence to this actually having some legs. This is the thing when you when you really dig down um, through all the like you say the um, superfluous <laughs> bits of the story to to the basic bits of the story none of them seem outside the realms of possibility to us like i say from our experiences from experiencing a haunted house from having you know i've had those kind of reactions when i've gone into haunted buildings you know with the feeling nauseous and palpitations and things like that they all seem really really plausible and it doesn't it doesn't sound that scary when you sit and say you know i heard some footsteps and you know, sitting at home on your sofa, you know, with the telly on, it doesn't sound scary at all. But when you live it, mm. it it's a lot more terrifying than you think it'll be. Because home is meant to be your safe place, and you know, everybody likes to have a good scare, go out to a haunted building and get spooked out and creeped out. But you know that you're going back to a safe environment, and when that safe environment becomes the place of fear for you. And yeah, yeah it, like like Fitz says, it doesn't sound very scary just hearing some doors banging and and noises waking you up at the night. But when the, the, you've when you've got no safe place to go to to get away from that, that's terrifying. And it it wouldn't take much to make you leave. No, I agree, and I think that plays into it. I think that is underplayed in this that you know twenty eight days is actually it's it's a short period of time in the grand scheme of things. But actually, if that's what you're suffering on a daily basis. And a big part of that is fear and tension and, you know, like I say, some sort of psychological pressure. 28 days can be a very, very long time. With that kind of level of activity, yeah, I mean, the house we lived in, um, there was one particular night I can think of where there was just, there was banging and crashing. There was nobody else in the house but us, but you could literally see the ceiling shake from the noise that was going on upstairs. It was like there was somebody throwing furniture around upstairs and we just had to leave you can't stay in that environment you just can't no i think that's it i think once you were uh, once you sort of start to have that happen um and i, I will admit i don't i've never really experienced anything in a home i've been in um that's been supernatural but i've had loud neighbors <laughs> yeah no that is that is really bad though it, it is unlivable sometimes yeah, you can reach a breaking point where you're just like i don't know what to do um yeah and add into that that george and i think probably danny and maybe even chris as well had mental problems yeah. you know then you can see how they'd snap with the constant mm. you know with having no safe place and no, no respite 
Yeah, I mean the one the one thing that came up again, and it's 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 a, I would say it's a more modern accusation that appears to have been thrown into this, is that George Lutz was actually into the occult, and this actually may have been something. This may have been him provoking spirits that were in the building. Yeah, now I don't know what to make of that. Like you say, that's only popped up in rec- very recently, mm. I think, really. this um, And to start with, there was just um, this claim that he'd been practising, well, both of them actually, um, George and Cathy, had been practising transcendental meditation. Mm. And then when Daniel Lutz did his My Amityville Horror, he said that... Um, even before they moved to Amityville, George had the, you know, like shelves of occult books um, and Satanism books and that he'd walked in on George actually levitating tools yeah. across the garage. Yeah. <laughs> that got a bit strange. Yeah. But he yeah. said it was one of the first things, wasn't it, that he had a bookcase full of, you know... Occult books. Occult books. But now, this, that, this has only I'm, come out now. Yeah. I, I, that sort of really doesn't sort of stand up for me especially no. because one of the first things they did in the house was get a priest in and Bless you'd have thought yeah. that the first thing a priest would have spotted was why have you got pagan and occult books <laughs> all over the place because he said yeah that because danny said they were out in plain view for everyone to see masses and masses of books about you know torture and the occult and various other things and you know if you're a priest and you're blessing the house, which means you're going into every single room, you're going to spot that, aren't you? Yeah, you know, if you've got some big old, you know, the Black Bible as a coffee table book, I think he's going to notice it. <laughs> it, think. it. It was it was just a really bizarre. Like I say, it comes out of nowhere. It's like, I think it has come from that Miamityville documentary, and then seems yeah. to have grown legs that it's now reported as almost as fact. That, oh yes, it's known that George Lutz was into the occult. But when you look back at the original stuff, him doing the transcendental meditation is a is a seems to be a known quantity and has always and has never been denied. No, but it was the seventies, <laughs> and that's what I say. But yeah, that was a thing in the seventies anyway. But um, I even I don't even think like occult books and you know books on spiritualism and lots of things would have been widely available in any real form. Uh, and this no, is no, I'm trying of... to think when we when did we have the because there was the satanic panic at one point, wasn't there? And there were like almost coffee table occult books that became very popular at one point, but I couldn't tell you exactly where you know which part it's, of the decade that was in. It is it is the sort of the late seventies, early eighties, especially in the UK. But, it sort of comes about, yeah, um, and um, is a result of it's a result of several things in the seventies. Um, but I think the point being there that those books were owned by a lot of people literally as coffee table books, not yeah. because they were seriously dabbling in the, the occult. It was the it was the 70s equivalent of um, something going viral. It is. I mean, it's a bit like there's um there's a there's a mystery uh, I, I, I'm always fascinated by. It's the guy who uh, who died on a beach in Australia and there was a. Um, no identification was found on him at all, apart from a piece of paper that's uh, the. It says Tamon Shud on it. Oh yeah, I've heard about this. I haven't. Uh, the summit. Have you not? The no. summit man. I forget, I've, I've, it's come out of nowhere. But basically, for years they were like, "Oh my god, this is code. It's got to be something." <laughs> and it turns out it's actually the last page of a book, uh, a book of poetry from a Middle Eastern prince. <laughs> at the time, was pretty much the the biggest seller. Oh, I see. So again, it's that thing that for years people thought, "Oh, these are fascinating words." And then when they find out that it's actually from this specific book, it's like, oh, it, it, 
the meaning of it sort of dies down. I mean, the completely different. Is, yeah, you put it in context. So, it may have been that he had some books on meditation and you know and spiritual spirit spirituality probably. Yeah. But then to say to claim that they were occult books is probably a bit of a step up. Well, you've got to remember that Danny was what seven at the time. Yeah, seven or eight. Was he ten? Was he in his 10 when he moved into Amsterdam? Yeah. I can't remember which way around it is. Plus, you know, again, like you say, this is a different time. I mean, mm. you know, kids are sort of acting like adults at 13 now, whereas yeah. when I was younger, you know, we were still going up to the country park on our bikes at 13. And I'm sure back in the sort of 70s, early 80s, it would have been a little bit more innocent. So I think, you know, maybe he perhaps saw... I don't know, Kama Sutra or something on the bookshelf <laughs> and decided not. that that was freaky. <laughs> and that's the image he had and he's sort of grown and built on that over time. I agree. I think that that's that's most likely the account is that is through, you know, resentment and bitterness of all those years, it's built up in his head as something completely different and mental health has probably had some hand to play in that. You have no idea where the telekinesis story comes from, though. No, can't help you on that one. <laughs> so, really, based on what we said, what everything we've recovered and everything we've discussed, do you think, then, that the Amityville horror has any any sort of grounding in reality, any possibility of being a real ghost story? I think Absolutely. so. Yeah, I do. I, I think, you know, the story ran away before they had a chance to tell it themselves. Um, but yeah, I think there was something there and it scared them enough that they felt they had to get out of the house and then the story ran away and they, through whatever reason, whether it was pride or whether it was because of sensationalism or you know, even after the fact thinking you know, they might make some money off it, that they had to sort of comply a little bit with the story that it's just it's built up to something that was bigger than was originally there. I think you're right. I think it's that case of the, once the horse had bolted, they couldn't get it back in the stable. So it was, you know, you sort of had to just go with it and ride it. Definitely, yeah. But all stemming, I think, from, you know, a seed of truth, really. I do think there was something happening in that house. I think it may have been more of a poltergeist activity than any Indian burial ground yeah. oh, God, um, but nevertheless the Stephen, yeah. the Stephen King ending yeah yeah <laughs> if only there was but... uh, there was yeah, something with the shining there they'd have been all they'd have probably been fine <laughs> but that's you know that's really not to take away from the fact that you know I think they had a genuine experience and it would have been terrifying I agree I think I would I would be fascinated as you know excuse the phrase but to be a fly on the wall in that house <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. For those twenty-eight days, to have really seen what they went through and to see what happened, because I do think there's a genuine thread, you know, of, of truth and something in here that 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 could be, you know, paranormally sort of like fascinating, but has been lost in the blur of everything else. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's it, really. I think I think we've sort of nailed it. I think we've yeah. <laughs> we covered it. everything. <laughs> <laughs> we solved it. All these years, all it took was us three. That's it. But, um, <laughs> no, it is. It's been fascinating this to chat because it's it's been one of those. So as all the research I've done, everything is sort of there's so much to to consider and so many people's views and so many. I know. That 
it's fascinating. There's so much more could the be said. The plot about kept it. getting thicker and thicker. Yeah, as more people want to get involved. Um, yeah. I mean, the big thing to say is a, is a bit of a cap is that, you know, they left the house January the 14th, 1976. Mm. Um, and they sold the house eventually. And since then, there's been no further or no reported activity in the house. Well, you say that. But just to, just for one last tiny little rabbit hole, mm. um, if at the end, I think it was the end of the first book, certainly in the second book, um, they did give account, the family gave accounts of the fact that the activity had followed them. And um, both sons, even now, say that the activity has followed them in adult life. They talk about being subjected to exorcisms as children mm. um, and basically that, you know, the activity went with them. So when you think of it like that, well, you could either think of it like that or you could think of it from the poltergeist activity point of view where it's caused by one person, then actually there'd be no reason for there to still be activity at 112 Ocean Avenue. No, that's a good point. So, And if it was poltergeist, poltergeist, poltergeist activity, sorry, instead of a ghost and it was focused on a person instead of a building, then, yeah, would it have followed them? And Yeah, definitely, and it wouldn't still be in the house. Why would it? And it all seems to be focused around the troubled families. Both yeah. the DeFeos and the Lutzes were not your typical family. And whether that's paranormal or psychosis, it's the fact that they're both sort of in that condition. You get a regular family move into the house after they've gone, they probably won't notice anything. Yeah, and but whether it's... I wonder if, because it seems like, say, you know, it's gone through a couple... It's gone through several owners in the, the last couple of decades, but there's not been the churn of that that couple of years that period of time if you do have like a happy family move in there that then has a content life and normal does that then quell some of that energy absolutely i mean we've heard stories from so many people that you know people that have been in really really active houses and they all say the same thing it feeds off negative energy mm. and the more negativity you feed it the worse it gets so that's it so it may have been that the, i'd be interested to see if those families that were in the house following the you know the, in the years following the events that they when they maybe had a row or there was an argument the family did something kick off did, did they have you know yeah. minor things that they yeah perhaps just weren't very noticeable or they just chose to chose to ignore and also there's the um the the fact that the the, the owners after the Lutzes didn't want anybody to think there was going anything going on there even if there had been I think they would have said there wasn't because at this point you've got people, um, you know, driving up to the house and pulling bits of the fence off so they can take souvenirs away with them, you know, and mobbing mobbing their lawn and their property because the house is so famous now. So they're not going to want to turn around and say that the activity is still happening. They just want to be left alone. That's another good point. I mean, this is it's that thing because they actually renovated part of the house so that it, it doesn't look like... Um, yeah, they took out the windows. Yeah, the famous sort of windows and stuff. They've taken out all the, the renovate to look different so that people almost drive past it. Yeah, and I think they renumbered the street as well. Yeah, because they were being, like I say, I think like I say every Halloween they were being swamped by people coming to see the notorious Hammityville house. So mm. you have another good point of if you, you know, if you don't want that notoriety, you just want to get on, then you, you take away the spectacle. Yeah. So, 
I think that's it. I think we've I think we've covered all. I find that fascinating. It's been a really interesting talk about this because it has. I've I've really enjoyed uh, getting into the whole idea of the of the Amityville thing because. 20th Century Geek is very much about obviously about the pop culture history of the 20th century, and and this to me is a massive milestone in in sort of like you know in horror history. Oh, huge! Um, like you say, more so than really than in supernatural history because it's it's so, so overtaken by entertainment. I mean, this film is so responsive. The the film and subsequent ripoffs are so you know. Um, responsible for everything we have today without without the amityville horror you wouldn't have poltergeist without the amityville horror no. you know you wouldn't have you probably wouldn't have the conjuring and you know the terrible the whole conjuring. warren franchise yeah. <laughs> yeah well the warrens probably wouldn't have got as famous as they did and yeah oh do you know what i hadn't thought about that yeah you could no, be that's right a very good point i mean yeah um so it, it, it's responsible for a lot the legacy of the amityville horror is actually a lot wider than just this single family, um, it, you know, it's 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 a really interesting event. I mean, in the next show, I'm actually going to be looking at the films, and and how they've affected things. So I will be talking about like Poltergeist and uh, all those films that came after it. Um, just as a sidebar, I do not recommend any of the super, the Amityville horrors beyond the first one because they are, <laughs> they, they are all. Roundly Dreadful. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've um the only other one I've seen apart from the original is the 2005 remake, mm. which was terrible as well. Was that the <laughs> yeah. Ryan Reynolds? That one? was the Ryan Reynolds oh. one. Yeah. And Jodie the pig was now a little girl, ghost girl, um that was one of the murdered DeFeo family members. It was yeah. all very weird. It's it's yeah. It it became very Hollywood. It became very stripped down, didn't it? It was a bit. That's the thing we didn't actually mention was Jodie the pig actually oh yeah um, what's going on with that that's an interesting point of that's where the demon that's the, de- the the demon apparently wasn't it that's the thing that like again the warrens focused in on this jody the pig as being uh the demon in the house but they actually recounted seeing a pig in the window um with big they did it's an it's another one of those that i've Flip flops on a bit. Yeah, I'm not certain that that was entirely the case because I thought that, and then we were because what I'd heard was that Danny and George were watching the garage door be flipped up and down, and that they saw the pig demon in the window. Mm. But we were watching an interview with George earlier, and he mentioned looking up and seeing a figure in the window. Didn't mention Danny. Didn't mention the garage door. And he just saw something in the window and ran upstairs to look at it. And it didn't go any further. And the other stories around that is that there was a neighbourhood cat that had the same name. And when the daughter drew a picture of what this thing is supposed to be, it looks very much like a child's drawing of a cat. Which really disappointed me because I remember reading the book, Jay Anson's book, when I was a teenager. And in the centrefold, there was a reproduction picture of this Jodie the Demon Pig. And I was terrified <laughs> yeah. by it. It was terrifying to me. And to find out years later, that was probably a picture of the neighbour's cat. It's quite a letdown. <laughs> I've actually got the picture in front of me now. I've got the book, actually. I've just flicked into the book. And um, it says it says Missy's picture of Jody running through the snow, and it's clearly not a pig. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, so yeah, and there was there was a, there was apparently there was a large fat cat that uh, the neighbourhood kids had christened uh, the pig because it was so big. 
So, but again, that that's something where it seems to get mixed in because again, I, I I think I may have seen the same interview where George actually refers to seeing a figure in the window with red eyes and and then seeing other things around the house and never mentions Jody the pig other than it was something that Missy spoke to. Yeah. So. It's, yeah, it's that thing of like, there's a kernel of truth in there that then's been yeah. twisted into something else. It's but, I think it's the Chinese whispers effect, you know, mm. that when the story was being told and recorded and you know that they've either misheard or decided that they can play on that and make it bigger, like you know, the windows exploding when it was just shutting. They're just taking the, a a nugget of something that sounds odd yes. and you know it might not have been in context. You know, they might have said, "Oh, you know, Jody the pig, this," and they've gone, "Hang on a minute, what's that about? You know, where did this pig come from?" When in fact, it's you know, it's just the kid going, "Oh, look at Jody the pig," and it's just mm. the neighbor's cat. Well, that's it. No one, no one really knows what you know. When Jay Anderson sat down to re- re-listen to all those cassettes of the you know the conversations they'd had, he like you say, he made he's, he's listened in on one thing and thought, "Oh, that's a nice." Uh, that sounds good. That does. That'll fit into the story. That can add to that. That can add to that. You know, he's he's built a structure that fits into almost. It's almost the book is a three act structure. Mm. And as you know, life isn't a three act structure. So no, no, like you like you said in the beginning, it is written like a novel. Mm. It's not written like a true recounting of events at all. No, and that's that's where the I think the real. You know, so you've really got to start taking this with a pinch of salt, and I think people write it off because of that, and I think that's selling it short, really. Yeah, I do. Right, I think we're going to try and wrap it up there <laughs> before we go down any more rabbit holes. There are so many other rabbit holes. <laughs> there are. To go down. Um, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fantastic. And, it uh, has. I, f- I feel like I've settled on a bit of a uh, a conclusion that I'm quite Excellent. comfortable with. Um, yeah. So, before we go, though, um, pimp your podcast. <laughs> Get fits. What more is there to say? Well, I it's the right time of year. You chose the perfect day for this, by the way, Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, as we're coming up to Halloween, we're uh, going to be having some more spooky stories on the show. We are actually trying to get together with some of the people that we used to live with at the house that was particularly active to have a, a discussion about that for our Halloween episode. So that should be quite interesting. Oh, be and we'll probably be covering lots of the things that we've talked about as happened yeah. in the Amityville if, if you're in, If your interest is piqued by any of the things we've hinted at here, we should be covering it in much more detail. Oh, fantastic. I will be listening, of course, because I, I find the show brilliant. Uh, I've already obviously provided a story for you guys. My time you have, school. and I do believe that is going to be in our Halloween episode as well. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to that. <laughs> so do we. It's a good one. Uh, so I shoot you on all the other um, the podcasting platforms? Yep, we are on pretty much everywhere, I think. Um, <laughs> we've recently got on Google Play now, so I think we're on, on almost everywhere. So Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, obviously, Google Play. Um, you should be able to find us. If not, just Google Knock Once for Yes. I think we come up as the first... Um, hit in Google now yep. and you can direct download all of our episodes from www.knockonceVS.com brilliant excellent 
thank you very much guys this has been a great chat and i will be in contact in the future i might see if there's any other supernatural events that i think tie into uh the pop culture that'd be worth discussing maybe even actually yeah, the warrens might be a- <laughs> oh yes. the warren rabbit hole <laughs> might be worth the chat. um yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, thank you very much guys and I shall uh, I shall leave you to enjoy your Friday evenings I just moved in my new house today moving was hard but I got squared away bells started ringing and chain ran aloud knew I'd moved in a haunted house still I made up my mind to stay Okay, ladies and gentlemen, there we have it. A fantastic discussion all about the Amityville horror with the great guys from Not Once for Yes. Please, I really do recommend you check out their podcast uh, on all platforms. They are very, very interesting. And some of the stories that they've received have been chilling. Absolutely perfect for this time of year uh, as the nights draw in. As I say, in the next episode, we're going to be looking at more about the Amityville horror. But this time, we're going to be looking at it from the entertainment perspective, we shall start with the first film and work our way through. And we're going to look at how that single film in this event changed the face of haunted house films for the rest of the 20th century. For now, you can always get in contact. Find us on Twitter, at 20th Century Geek, or on Facebook, under 20th Century Geek. Uh, if you want to email me directly, it's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Tumblr. I'm on Instagram. Please check out the photos we've been doing on Instagram. It's, again, it's at 20th Century Geek. Uh, and Biggie, the Biggie, uh, please, if you are willing to give me some donations, uh, 20th Century Geek is now on Patreon. Please check us out. Uh, helps keep the lights on. Anyway, for now, thanks for listening. And we'll catch up again soon. Mm-hmm.